Today's podcast episode is brought to you by RxBar. Visit rxbar.com forward slash elevator, then use the promo code elevator for 25% off your first order. Recovery Elevator episode 156. You know, she looked at me and she said, you're 28 years old. You have your whole life ahead of you. You can change the entire course of your life if you just ask for help. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator Sobriety Tracker on my phone, I've been sober for just over 41 months. On today's podcast, we've got Katie. She's 29 years old, lives in Dallas, Texas, and talks about how she didn't really think she had a drinking problem when she went into rehab. One thing that resonated with me in the interview is she says she didn't feel like she was gaining traction in life, that she was incredibly stuck. And that's exactly how I felt, Katie, when I was drinking. I wasn't getting any traction in life. Foam. The answer to my problems the last four weeks is just foam. So while recording this podcast, I'd play it back and I'd say, man, this doesn't really sound that good. And I just had a renovation done in my office and we enclosed the walls. I brought my podcasting setup from my house to my office. And I thought the answer to the microphone not sounding good was foam. Amazon Prime will solve this problem. Just ordered more foam. If you were to close your eyes in my office, spin around, throw a dart at the wall, you're most likely going to hit foam. I just kept ordering foam probably like $200 worth of foam. And then I realized that the foam wasn't doing much. So after further investigation, I found out the microphone was just unplugged. Well, it was plugged in. And so I had to re-download the recording software and all the preferences were, were messed up. So yeah, it's a little embarrassing. The reason why the sound quality wasn't very good the last four episodes was I wasn't using my nice microphone. Uh, people have asked me, do I need a microphone to record a podcast? Well, I guess the answer is no, you don't. So hopefully you enjoy the nicer audio quality. And before we get to our topic, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe RE meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. I want to keep the Recovery Elevator podcast positive and uplifting, and I feel like I've done a good job of that the previous 155 episodes, so this podcast episode, it's going to kind of take a different route. Basically, I'm pissed, and that is okay. It's okay to be pissed at times. We've heard the cliche, progress, not perfection. But after doing research for a lot of these podcast episodes, I'm starting to realize, man, there is still a shit ton of progress to be made in regards to recovery. So I've made it clear that the Recovery Elevator podcast is not a diatribe against alcohol. I'm not single-handedly recruiting people to grab their pitchforks and stand outside Big Alcohol's headquarters. I'm not. But at times, I'm kind of pissed. And I need to be careful how I channel this energy. And I feel like I've done a good job of that since the inception of this podcast. So let's hope this podcast episode, just this one, is an offshoot and a one-off. I need to be careful, and I don't want to build resentments towards big alcohol, things, groups that I cannot control, and perhaps talking about it is a good way to avoid that. But basically, I'm upset. And what is that? Well, it's a feeling and emotion that I need to feel and face. I'm going to do my best not to double down on this emotion. For example, I'm not going to be mad that I'm upset. I'm just going to be one emotion, just upset. And that's okay. What am I upset about? Well, for starters, I didn't attend the Third Eye Blind 20-year anniversary tour this summer, even though I was offered tickets and backstage passes by a tour manager who listens to the podcast. How is this recovery related? Well, I was withdrawing from antidepressants, which I went on in hopes of fixing what was wrong with me, because it couldn't have been the alcohol, right? I'm upset about the stigma surrounding alcohol and addiction. 
I'm upset at the way we treat alcoholism. At times, I'm upset with Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you know who is the happiest? It's anonymous? Well, it's not the members of AA or the brave people who share their stories in AA and attend the meetings. It's big alcohol. They've got to be ecstatic that in the traditions of AA, it basically says keep your mouth shut. I'm upset with science and how modern science and the recovery community are on two different planets. At times, I'm mad at my brother who can drink normally. I'm mad at rehab clinics that claim a 70% success rate when it's probably in the low teens. I'm mad at the gray area in addiction. Speaking of gray area, the big book of AA includes an assertion first made in the second edition, which was published in 1955, that AA has worked for 75% of people who have gone to meetings and really tried. It says that 50% got sober right away, and another 25% struggled for a while but eventually recovered. According to AA, these figures are based on members' experiences. In his recent book, The Sober Truth, Debunking the Bad Science Behind 12-Step Programs and the Rehab Industry, Lance Dodes, a retired psychiatry professor from Harvard Medical School, looked at Alcoholics Anonymous's retention rates along with studies on sobriety and rates of active involvement among AA members. And based on that data, he put AA's actual success rate somewhere between 5 and 8%. I'm mad there's so much conflicting information out there. I'm mad at the amount of pain and bullshit someone has to go through before they get help. I'm mad I purchased hideous blue leather shoes on eBay once while I was blacked out. Well, let's be honest, that probably would have happened anyways. I'm mad that addiction treatment isn't grounded in modern science. A 2012 report by the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University, my safety school, kidding, compared the current state of addiction medicine to general medicine in the early 1900s. I'm mad that the American Medical Association estimates that out of a nearly 1 million doctors in the United States, only 582 identify themselves as addiction specialists. Even though it can be argued that addiction is the number one killer in the United States of America. I'm mad that Amy Lee McCoy, the author of the memoir From Death Do I Part, How I Freed Myself from Addiction, went to rehab eight times, starting at age 13. She says, it's like getting the same antibiotic for a resistant infection eight times, she says. She also says, I honestly thought AA was the only way anybody could ever get sober, but I learned that I was wrong. I'm mad that I also thought AA was the only way to get sober. A meticulous analysis of treatments, published more than a decade ago in The Handbook of Alcoholism Treatment Approaches, but this is still considered one of the most comprehensive comparisons, ranks AA 38th out of 48 methods. I'm mad at AA for not having opinions on outside matters, that they neither endorse or oppose other approaches. But please, AA, grow a pair and get an opinion. You're the only one on this planet that doesn't have one. I'm mad that 12% of 12-step attendees are court-ordered to be there. That's not attraction. That's a sentence. I'm mad there's a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to diagnosing an AUD, an alcohol abuse disorder. You're either an alcoholic or you're not. Want your skis? Go get them. There's a Warren Miller reference for you ski bums in the 80s. I'm mad that the word alcoholic is a one-size-fits-all descriptor that usually ends a sentence. For example, with cancer, that rarely ends a sentence. For example, my neighbor Tina with cancer also makes a mean pumpkin pie. But with alcoholic, it's different. It's basically, yeah, my buddy Mike, he's an alcoholic. Period. It shouldn't be that way. I'm mad that America spends $35 billion a year on substance abuse treatments, yet alcohol kills 88,000 people each year. I'm mad that in the U.S. someone is killed by a drunk driver every 51 minutes. I'm mad that although alcohol kills 17.6 times more people than cocaine does each year, that there is still this war on drugs, and alcohol is not included in that statement. I'm mad that the single most expensive commercial of all time was purchased by Guinness at $20 million. I'm upset that big alcohol is a $100 billion a year industry in the U.S. alone, and also the number one killer of adults in the U.S. I'm mad that big alcohol, which harms millions of people, has gone effectively unchallenged. I will be mad, future tense, that when the day comes, which it will, when ordinary citizens are so sick and tired of the death and destruction caused by alcohol, that the booze merchants will rise up in a well-orchestrated course and insist that there is no risk in drinking alcohol except for the weak-willed among us who abuse it. And that argument they will make, it will be convincing. But please, don't fall for it. 
I'm mad that in 1950, alcohol taxes represented 6.2% of total federal revenues. By 1970, that had fallen to 2.5%, and by 1990, they were less than 0.5% of total federal revenues. How is it that alcohol is being taxed less? Fuck. I'm mad that Sinclair, the Sinclair Method, published a paper in 2001 claiming the Sinclair Method reports a 78% success rate in helping patients reduce their drinking to 10 drinks or less per week, stating that the Sinclair Method works. But everyone I've talked to who use naltrexone and the Sinclair Method says in the long run, it's a bust. It doesn't work. Damn it. I'm mad that I reached a point of instead of drinking to feel good, I drank to avoid feeling bad. Now, it may sound conflicting for me to say I'm a big fan of AA. It was a huge part in my sobriety. I will forever be thankful of the time my sponsor spent with me to go through the steps. But at the time when I got sober, I thought AA was the only way, that it was AA or bust. So I feel like it's my job to let you know that there are other resources out there. But AA, for me, the most important part of it is the community. It's the people, the relationships that you're going to meet in AA that makes the program invaluable. So like I said, I'm mad. But that's just today. Tomorrow is going to be a different day. But today, I'm not going to use a carcinogen to avoid these feelings. I'm going to face it just like Pema Chodron says, front and center. But before we hear from Katie, let's talk about some things to be happy about. Number one, epic sunsets. Number two, the sound of an ice cream chuck. How about gentle ocean waves? Let's be happy about cookies, especially the ones that come right out of an oven. Let's be happy about the sound of children laughing. Let's be happy about when a loved one or someone close to you says, nice job, I'm proud of you. Damn, that feels good. Okay, enough out of me, but before we hear from Katie, let's hear from our sponsor, RX Bar. RX Bar is a whole food protein bar. What does that mean? Their bars are made with 100% whole ingredients. They label the core ingredients. That would be egg whites, dates, and nuts on the front of the package, and the ingredients that make up the texture and taste on the back of the package. That would be 100% real cacao, coconut, etc. Beyond being a go-to snack that checks off a number of nutritional boxes, RX Bars actually taste delicious. They found creating a bar made from real, whole food ingredients actually tastes better than anything out there. And I can attest to that. Actually, right now, you can hear the ruffling in the microphone. I'm holding the package of a peanut butter RX bar. It says three egg whites, 14 peanuts, two dates. This is my favorite flavor, and I've got a bunch of them that I eat on the go. Oh, yeah. RX bars are gluten-free, soy-free, and dairy-free, and there's no added sugars. RX bars are great for a number of occasions. Breakfast on the go, snack at the office, throw it in your bag for the plane ride, toss it in your backpack for a bike ride or a hike. These are fantastic. So visit rxbar.com forward slash elevator and enter the promo code elevator for 25% off your first order. Again, visit rxbar.com forward slash elevator and enter the promo code elevator for 25% off your first order. Okay, now let's hear from Katie. Katie, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Paul? Katie, I'm great. Thanks for asking. Katie, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? 496 days. 496 days. Congratulations. And before I hit record, I asked you that was September 21st, 2016. Nice job. Thank you. Yeah. And before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, Katie. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living. Do you have a family? And, and Katie, what do you like to do for fun? Yeah. So, Paul, I'm 29. I grew up in Westchester, New York. So, I, I hail from the East Coast. And then I went to college in the University of Colorado in Boulder. So spent a couple years in Colorado, lived in Denver after that, and now I live in Dallas, Texas. So a few different parts of the country. I know you've lived with a few different parts as well. What do I do for fun? Don't, I'm sure I've heard people on your podcast say this before. Like, this is a great question now because I actually do things where before it was always like I drink. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, that was all I ever did, and I felt like I was so boring. So now I'm really into fitness, which has become a, a huge part of my recovery I ran my first half marathon last month, which is awesome. Yeah, that's huge. And and listeners, I'm excited for this interview. In fact, all interviews I'm excited to do. But this one, particularly, I'm excited because Katie and I, we've met in person. She came to the retreat in Bozeman, Montana. In fact, one of my favorite quotes, which I've mentioned on this podcast, is I can't wait to tell my friends what we did at rehab camp. That was just amazing. Uh -uh. And then uh, I met Katie again for the second time in Dallas uh, for the retreat we just had. And yeah, like you said, fitness. I was like, hey, what'd you do today? Or or, what are you doing tomorrow? You're like, oh, I've just got a 10-mile run scheduled on the calendar. (laughs) So how was that run? 
I was like, no big deal. I was just going to like go knock out 10 miles, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was yeah. pretty good. How'd you like Texas? Texas was, uh, Texas was great. It was, uh, yeah, I mean, it's probably besides Montana. That's definitely the state I'd move to next. I'm just kidding. Oh, really? No, I, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, Texas, yeah. Texas is big. Uh, Texas is cool. There was, it was, uh, the retreat was incredible. That was fun. And everybody's super nice, pretty flat. And, uh, it was, it was cool. No, yeah. Texas, Texas was good. The people are very friendly. The weather's pretty good. Yeah, the weather was great. And how do you like Texas? Because you went to school in Colorado. You're from the East Coast. And yeah, how do you like Texas? You know, so I actually really have grown to like it a lot. I also really like the weather, as I said. I've always lived in really cold parts of the country. But I didn't realize how nice it is to, like, not be freezing and to not have to shovel your car to snow all the time. Yeah, I was walking Ben, my poodle, this morning in the bathroom, and it's, it's like a perilous walk sometimes with the snow and ice. And, yeah, it's just kind of like an unnecessary struggle in the wintertime. But then what's it, like, what's it like when it's like 105, 110, and humid in the summer? Yeah, you just better make sure that the air conditioning is working in your car. Gotcha. And just stay in your car at all One, times or indoors. <laughs> just stay, they're very, like, equipped for it. Like, everywhere is air conditioned. So it's okay. I, I personally actually really like the heat, so it's, it's been a good fit for that reason. But yeah, Texas is great. It's been a really good place to get over, actually. Nice. That's awesome. And I'm excited to dive into your story. I heard a, a good chunk of it at the retreat in Bozeman. And before I hit the record yeah. button, we went over it. And I think there's going to be a lot of similarities that people can relate to. One thing you just said is, is you went to rehab and you had no idea you had a drinking problem. Um, <laughs> And which I, I find it, it's, it's awesome. And I, I'm excited to, for you to explain about, you know, how you realize, wait a second, alcohol is the issue here. And when I volunteered uh -huh. at Hope Rehab in Thailand, a lot of people had this same story where it was about two really? weeks. Yeah, it was crazy. It was about two weeks into rehab or like the people had it like at least a couple weeks into rehab. I'd say, what are you here for? You know, if it was like their day one, day two, they're like, oh, I'm here for Coke, for heroin, this and that. But as the longer they stayed in rehab, it shifted. The, the more they could look back on their story, they say, wait a second, alcohol is what brought me here. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say about that. And also, yeah. a lot of times, it's it's not just straightforward. It's not like for alcohol or it's just alcohol. And I know for me, before I got sober, I thought I had problems with sleeping. You know, it couldn't have been the alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so I was taking Ambien. Mm -hmm. I had bad anxiety, of course. And then I was prescribed benzodiazepines. And so your story parallels that as well. So before me, just like, you know, spoiler, telling the whole story, I'm looking forward to hear it from you. So yeah, let's, let's back it up a little bit and let's just, uh, okay. yeah, let's, let's take it from the top. Okay. So I, I drank a lot in high school. I drank a lot in college. I picked Boulder cause it was a party school. Actually, <clears throat> it was voted the number one party school the year I graduated by Playboy just saying. And I graduated. So pretty big accomplishment there. Hey, that, that's, that's uh, you make sure you got a, a piece of paper for that. Nice job. I know. Right. So, but yeah, so basically after college, I moved to Denver. I had a really great network of people there right away. A lot of my friends from school had moved there as well. And I think that's really when my insomnia started. Uh, and if I can really be honest with myself and look back, I think that's when a lot of my drinking behavior changed also, you know, college was great. But I had school and I had homework and I was pretty academic. So I wasn't drinking all the time. And then I got my first career, my first salary job in Denver. And, you know, like homework wasn't there anymore. I didn't have a ton of commitment. I was making pretty decent money. And that was just the thing. We just started going out like every single night. And that really coincided with me developing this really horrible insomnia. For about a year of that heavy drinking, I was never sleeping. And it was, I mean, it was so miserable that... I finally went to a doctor, said I had insomnia, uh, and the first instinct, the first thing they did was they put me on Xanax. So that really started kind of my, that's like the inception of when I really started to do pills. I mean, I did some Adder, done some Adderall in college, but, you know, that was not something I did on a daily basis by any means, just for tests in school. And after I got on the, on the Xanax, you know, that stopped working after a while. And I was, I got another job then and I started traveling like all the time. I mean, I was on the road like 75%. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, sleeping was a really big thing for me. It was something that always gave me a ton of anxiety, hitting the road, different time zones, different hotels. And I was terrified if I couldn't fall asleep. So I expressed that to my doctor, same doctor who put me on Xanax and put me on Ambien. <laughs> and then, you know, when you're taking all of that medication, it really get into a really deep sleep. 
you know, I wasn't always letting myself have that eight hours that's pretty required for Ambien. Uh, and I was having trouble waking up in the morning. So <laughs> there comes the Adderall. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that was the treadmill I was on for at least three years. It was come home from work. I don't know if you've taken Adderall, you kind of have a come down. Um, so I drank a little bit to pacify that. I would take some Xanax, then I would go to bed, take some Ambien. And I mean, like anything, your tolerance builds up. I mean, it got to a point where I was running through my prescriptions, 30 days worth and maybe 10 days, two mm-hmm. weeks. Yeah. It's pretty bad. And did you ever start to take that stuff recreationally? Like I've taken Ambien before, not as prescribed. Sometimes you just so, take it and don't go to bed and just walk around. Yeah, that's, yeah. I actually really enjoyed taking Ambien. I like fighting the sleeping feeling on it. I loved eating on it. I don't know if that's something you experienced, but that was like, I would wake up and I would just have like candy wrappers all over my bed. <laughs> yeah, I, I've done the same. Done the same. And, uh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Totally. Because you don't really remember it. You're basically like sleepwalking, sleep eating. Yeah. Yeah. And I've I've kind of gone through this same roller coaster of, of, of things. And it's, it's hard to get off. It's like you solve one problem, but then you create another problem. Like, okay, Xanax, let's go to Ambien and then let's go to Adderall. But like you mentioned, everything builds up. And, and so when did you realize like, wait a second, like this is not sustainable. We're not actually solving the core problem here. I need help. Yeah. Great question. So, uh, you know, I moved to Dallas, I got to Dallas and I had kind of a rude awakening in, in the sense that doctors here were not in Dallas, you know, they were not thrilled with all the medication that I was on. I was, it wasn't as accessible as it had been in Colorado. Um, So they really tried to taper me down and they weren't prescribing me what I was used to getting. So it got scared. Like I didn't know where to find drugs. I was new to the city. Let me ask you a question about that. I, I think that's good. I mean, the way the system is set up that basically like, Mm -hmm. you know, psychiatrists, I don't want to use the word drug dealers, but it's the way Mm -hmm. the system is set up. I've gone in and I just got off Vyvanse and Adderall, these ADD meds the last four or five months. And it's kind of, you walk in and just say, Hey, this is what I need. You get a script, you go buy it and it's all regulated, but it's good. You went to the doctors in Dallas and they weren't so on board with that. What was that like? I mean, that's two opposites. Yeah. You know, It is really frustrating when I think back to the fact that I got put on all that medication. I mean, I, I really wonder if when I had first come in with a sleeping problem, the doctor just said, don't drink for 30 days and see how you feel, you know? No kidding. Um, yeah. Um, you know, and it, was, it didn't start off as drug-seeking behavior. I wasn't addicted. I didn't really know what the solution was. I just wanted to sleep, and that's what they provided for me. So when I got to Texas and they were really kind of, like, concerned with all the medication I'd been on, where I'd gone from, you know, having maybe 30 Xanax a month and they'd only be giving me six, it was tough. And I wasn't really willing to be honest about the fact I was like so addicted to pills because, you know, in that case, then they won't really give you anything. And I didn't have a support system there. I moved there with no friends, no family. I really started over for a job opportunity and a little bit of that geographical care too. I was ready for a change. But you know, what it led me to, I, I struggled a lot. I went through a lot of like withdrawals by myself. I kind of tried to source like coworkers or people I knew, who had tips, which is, you know, in itself very scary and so unprofessional and startled me. I was flying back to Colorado. I mean, that's the point where I would get on maybe Bumble and try and see if anybody on there uh, could help me out. Did you just say Tinder or Bumble? <laughs> I did. Okay. What would you do? <laughs> no. And that was kind of an impetus when like mm. there was, the writing was on the wall for me. I texted a friend. This is in November or October. But yeah, I had gone like five days off my ADD meds. And I texted a friend who I knew had some ADD meds. I was like, hey, man, like I'm, I'm struggling here. Like, can I get the goods? And I'm like, dude, this is, this is not good. Yeah. And yeah. And that's kind of what spurred my 32 day taper off that stuff. And now I'm almost at day 30 with nothing and it feels good. That's awesome. Yeah. And, yeah. But I want to go back. Mm-hmm. There's something you said earlier, how sleep mm-hmm. was terrifying. And I know a lot of people can relate to that because I can relate to that hundred percent when I was, especially when I was in Spain, when I had the bar, not drinking the hardest part about that was the nighttime and because uh-huh. when it came around i knew i wasn't gonna sleep and i knew i just had to like put my head on the pillow roll left roll right roll left roll right repeat and rinse hundreds of times and not sleep uh-huh. maybe get like a half hour and just that experience was induced so much anxiety and 
Yeah, yeah. I understand that hundred percent. It's, it's scary. <clears throat> it's scary. And that's something that everybody has to address. It's like, you know, our, our natural, our brains will rewire itself to go to sleep again. And, um, it sounds yeah. like you're, that's what you're doing now. Okay. Let's back yeah, it up a bit. So how did, okay. when, when did rehab come into play here? Yeah. So this is actually kind of like crazy when I look back on it, it had been Labor Day weekend of 2016. And I had just gotten to this point where I was really just like, I knew I was in trouble. Like I was beside myself. I felt so alone. I was so drunk coming home from this party and I had met these girls from New York and I, it just felt, it just felt like it was impossible. Like I was going to get any traction or momentum in my life. I just felt so stuck, so helpless that I actually, and this is, this is very bizarre because I'm not religious, but it was so visceral. I got home that day and I literally just like cried out and like screamed alone in my apartment, sobbing, like, I need help. I need help. I need help. I want to go home. I need help. And I hope this doesn't get too weird. I didn't hear like an audible voice or anything, but I got this very strong messaging that was like, it's okay, your dad is coming. And the truth was my dad was coming out a week later to move my apartments with me in Dallas. And I really held on to that. I was like, okay, because I was, I mean, I was starting to feel, you know, almost suicidal for the first time in my life. And that scared me. I had never had those thoughts before. So I heard just hang on, your dad's coming. And when my dad got there, and we were moving me, I found pills that I had hidden from myself in a blackout. So I had Xanax in the paper towel roll. I had Ambien in a Sephora bag in the closet, you know? And the thing is, I knew I was short pills. I didn't know where they went. I think I just assumed I must have taken them. And my first response was like, oh, great. This is awesome. You know, I found all these extra pills. And then, you know, it's pretty scary to think I was hiding these from myself in a blackout. Wow. So what happened next is my dad had no idea. I didn't share that with him. I like hit it. I was, I, I like was processing that on my own, but I was seeing a therapist at that time. And my dad just asked, Hey, I know you're going to therapy today. Do you mind if I come with you? And I said, I, I mean, I don't know. I didn't ask my therapist, but like, yeah, sure. It's, it's kind of a far drive. Like we can drive together. Mm-hmm. And when we got to my, when we got to my therapist's office, my dad started telling my therapist how proud he was of me. I had gotten off. They'd also put me on antidepressants, which I totally got off of, tapered off of myself, which I would not recommend. But I didn't feel like they were doing anything right. I was used to taking really intense drugs that had a lot of abuse potential and pretty fast um, act, actors. You know, you felt that quickly. Yeah. And I didn't think antidepressants were doing anything, which no. we all know maybe the only thing that would have helped me. So he said he was so proud of me. And I, in that moment, I just realized really there was no transparency. Like my dad had, he honestly had no idea how much I was struggling. And that shocked me. And, and, um, but and did, she saw me get, was a therapist in the middle looking at you being like, Katie, it's, mm-hmm. it's now or never. Like we got to tell him right now. Or was the therapist also kind of in the dark? No. So this is what's so cool. She saw, she saw my face get like ghost white. And I was like panic, like sheer panic and like, you know, and so she asked my dad to leave the room, and this this is when it all went down. She literally was like, "What's going on?" And I just let it rip. You know, I was nobody knows. This is what just happened. I just found these pills. How doesn't he know? How does anybody know? Like, I'm in so much pain. And she told told me to tell my dad, and that it would all be okay. And I did not want to do it. And it's crazy. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. I don't know. It's, I wanted the help, but I, I didn't want to put that financial burden on my dad. I, I was terrified what would happen at work, you know, but she said something to me that was so powerful. And I'm so happy she said this. You know, she listened to me and she said, you're 28 years old. You have your whole life ahead of you. You can change the entire course of your life if you just ask for help. And so my dad came back in and I told him and I landed in rehab about two weeks later it sounds like a really good therapist and it sounds kind of like he's amazing yeah yeah seriously and it sounds like the stars yeah. just aligned you say hey can i go with you to therapy like oh i guess you can ride in the car and then sit in the car while i'm in therapy no nope, yeah. nope, dad you're coming in now and uh, oh gosh this whole thing just unfolded and so you're in rehab and you don't even mm-hmm. think you have a drinking problem talk to us more right. about that <laughs> i love to say this i mean i was going to rehab and I had no idea I was going to rehab to get sober. I mean, I wanted. <laughs> they have good board games in rehab. Like, what, what were you expecting? I thought I was just going to like go to sleep. Like, I was like, oh, I just like need this. I needed to sleep. Like that was it was to that point. I needed a place to go to sleep. And work was really stressful. I also was like, yeah, I, I, I mean, I needed a timeout. Let's be honest. Yeah, a thirty-day really nap. Not yeah, a great that's, place. that's what the doctor. A thirty-day nap, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so, and I say this too, because I'm really thinking back to where I was mentally at that point. You know, I ordered a Miller Lite on the plane on the way to rehab. And I always say, if I knew I was getting sober, you better believe my last drink would not be a Miller Lite. Like, you know. Yeah, like, poor choice, no Katie. <laughs> I know. I mean, I made peace with it. It's okay. But uh, the other thing is I had a flight book for the day I was supposed to get out of rehab to one of my college roommates' weddings in Boulder. So not only was I, like, not planning to get sober, I mean, I was planning to, like, leave rehab and go straight to, like, hang out with all my buddies from college. So that gives you a little insight into where I was, you know, mentally. Yeah, plan from rehab to relapse was already booked. It was like, yeah, right. But I was going to do it differently, you know. I was going to do it differently. I was going to keep taking pills, but I was just going to – I was going to do it differently. I was going to take them as needed when as prescribed. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah um, exactly. Yeah, right. Great plan. The only thing that was unmanageable <laughs> was my ability to manage my, you know, my pills, making them last. Mm-hmm. So so what happened in rehab is pretty, pretty awesome. Also, I, the entire time I was there, I was not an alcoholic. I wasn't even an addict. I was an insomniac. I mean, that is how I identified myself. We would go to meetings and I would like, I would say like <gasps> oh. I was sleeping problems. Yeah. And the girls in my house were like, Katie, like, <laughs> like, yeah, I'm a little worried about you. You know, and I was so easy to be like, okay, my problems are not your problems. Like, I just have a sleeping problem. And what ended up happening, which is not surprising, is pretty soon into my stay there, I did. I started sleeping really well. And I liked that. And I wanted to keep that going. And you said I said like day three, you slept. And you're like, wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah. And let me, let me say also, I slept. I'm very particular about, you know, my accommodations and I slept in a room with three other women and like they snored. Everybody was like super loud. We had this like crazy rainforest noise machine going off. Like I didn't think I was going to ever get sleep there. (laughs) And I got some of the best sleep of my life. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. True or false. You had a lavender infused foam memory pad sent to rehab. I did. Oh, true. True. Okay. Okay. That's true. And and, uh, side note, I'm going to inform listeners on this. Uh, Katie also had one of these shipped to the retreat in Bozeman that nestled at the foot of the Rocky Mountains and then confirmed with 54 emails. Paul, did you receive the lavender infused (laughs) foam memory pad? (laughs) Yes, Katie. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) this is just highlighting how important is to me at this point right no it's huge yeah (laughs) yeah it's a little embarrassing but anyways so going through yeah so going through treatment it was literally maybe a few days before I discharged from rehab although I'd realized I wasn't going to my college room and sweating by this point but I still had not come to terms that I had a drinking problem so we were talking about my aftercare plan you know Mm -hmm. and I was I was like hey I was getting at the end of October. I thought it was going to be a brilliant idea to just stay sober through New Year. So that would give me two more months. My sleep would be great. I'd hit a good baseline. You know, maybe like, you know, just do it. Like that seemed like doable and like a good timeline. And I was explaining that to her and she, she said, okay, well, how do you plan to be sober for, you know, the next 60 days? You've already told me you don't want to do AA. You don't have friends or family there. You know, like what's your plan? And I, I said, and this is it. This is my moment of clarity. I said, give me some anabuse. I'll take anabuse for 60 days. <laughs> and do you know what anabuse is, Paul? Yeah, yeah. That, that, the podcast episode that came out today is, is all about anabuse. Oh, really? and Naltrexone, Vivitrol. Yeah. Camprol, all that and stuff. That's, yeah. That's a good plug. I didn't know that. But anabuse, you know, if you, if you drink on it, you get violently, violently ill. You can't drink enough to get drunk without getting uh-huh. really sick. And it's yeah. dangerous. So that was my solution to staying sober. And so she looked at me and she said, okay, do you think someone who's not an alcoholic needs anabuse to stay sober? Uh, (laughs) Oh, the plot thickens. (laughs) I know. And I mean, I was like, no, no, like that's crazy. And she's like, so do you need anabuse to stay sober for 60 days? And I was like, oh my gosh. I do. And I mean, that was it. That was my moment of clarity. That was my moment of clarity. And wow. it was like, it, it's like if we had not had that conversation, I'm talking days before I left the entire time I was not, I had not bought in. I didn't think I had a problem. And it was that conversation that changed everything for me. And it's just that, I don't want to say it's that easy, but it's like once you finally get that, however it takes to leave denial. I mean, I really think that's 
the hardest part. So that conversation like, took place, you said just a couple days before you left rehab, right? Couple days, days before. So, we, while we were discussing my aftercare plan, my discharge plan. Yeah. So you didn't fly to your friend's wedding, which I think is great. I did not. Yeah. So what was it like yeah. after your 30 day hibernation, which you thought you were doing <laughs> to go out in the real world and be like, Oh gosh, eh, also can't drink no pills, no drinking. Oh shit. What now? Like, yeah. How did yeah. you do it? What was that like? It was, you know, it was really tough. I got back to Dallas. Um, and I, it was, it was hard. I, I did end up doing AA. I found some really cool groups. It ended up being a really safe place to go, you know, happy hour time, weekends, you know, some of those really vulnerable times early in sobriety. Uh, and the thing why I said really early that it was great I got sober in Dallas was I didn't have a friends in Dallas. You know, I had only been there less than a year. So what ended up happening was I finally really started liking Dallas because I got plugged in in the fellowship. I started making a lot of sober friends. And then I started getting really into fitness also. And so I made a lot of friends at my gym. So just all these like great influences, great people were doing a lot of good stuff. But yeah, it was tough. I will say this about, you know, three months into being sober, I, I thought I was ready to like go out and like go on my first date. And that was, I didn't, I didn't even know what the narrative was. I was going to paint around that yet. And I'm sorry if I'm getting off topic, but it's actually kind of interesting. No, this is all very good stuff. Okay. What ended up happening is the guy I met in my building, you know, he was a big drinker and I was still really attracted to that. Like that, you know, I was still in that mind, even though I wasn't drinking, like that's all I'd ever really dated. That was the lifestyle I was in. So I went out with this guy and we're, you know, I don't know how I'm going to frame this narrative yet. I don't know how I'm going to be honest about the fact I don't drink or what I've been through or what I'm going through. I mean, I'm the best 90 days sober at this point, but I still want to do things my way. And I think I'm ready to date, right? Like that's what I wanted to do. So we went out and he was like, let's go get a drink. I'm like, oh, I'm like not drinking. Like when I'm on a cleanse, something ridiculous. But he could tell I was really, <laughs> yeah. really, you know, like, oh, I'm like doing whole 30 or You got a marathon whatever. tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, right. That, yeah, right. So, um, and he, he, he could tell I was really uncomfortable. And he ended up telling me, he asked me if I was like in recovery. And I was like, whoa. And he's like, yeah, I was sober for two years. I'm an alcoholic. Obviously oh, I'm drinking. Wow. I'm back out. And it was, it was really, it was like this huge burden was lifted. Like this is my first entry. Obviously it didn't end up working out cause he was out and drinking and recognized he had a problem. And that just was like not good for me early in Friday, but it was such a relief. I just started like crying on this date because I'm like, Oh wait, like this is so great. Like I don't have to lie about it. And we just had this really great conversation about kind of his experience and mine. So that was cool. Wow. <laughs> Do you mind asking, is, is that guy still drinking? Is he, is he sober? Uh, no. I don't think he's sober. That's... I don't know if he's still in my building though either. So yeah, yeah it, it didn't really work out, you know, but it was, it was a cool kind of first experience. Got it. It sounds like, uh, you know, like almost like three divine things happen. First off your therapist with your dad and yeah. you know, the unveiling of all that information. And then the conversation you had, look, you think uh, somebody without a drinking problem doesn't need an abuse that that's pretty important. And then the first date you go on in sobriety, uh, that could have gone the other way real quick. Um, that's, yeah, that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really cool. It was interesting. That's for sure. Yeah. And I know it has not been easy for you when you shared at the retreat in Bozeman, um, it was, it was inspirational, Katie, you, you've, you faced no shortage of hard times. You know, what were sometimes in, in your recovery where you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm using pills. I'm, I'm going to drink again. And how you, how'd you overcome them? Tell us about a time when that happened. Man, put me on the spot, Paul. Oh yeah. I had romantically gotten involved with someone. It didn't, it didn't last super long, um, but it didn't end well. And that's really hard. I mean, it's really hard for anyone, but I, I had a really difficult time with it, so, but I didn't drink. And the thing about it is, I will say this, it happened, the, the ending of it happened right, not even a week before my one year. And I don't know if I would have had the resolve to stay sober had it happened a week after my one year, but I was not about to be the girl who relapsed after 11 and a half months, you know, 11 no. and three quarter months. Like, and so that was another thing that was like so crazy. And it's like anything, emotions are really raw and real when they happen. Your first instinct is to want to drink through that or numb that. Um, but they don't last forever. You know, by the time my year came that week or so later, I mean, I was still sad and emotional, but it was not how it was a week earlier when it was so raw, you know? Uh, yeah. It was a really good lesson. Totally. And, and what, have, what is your proudest moment in sobriety, Katie? 
and you know I'm out in Colorado right now. I'm here visiting a really good friend of mine, actually my uh, best friend from college. So we met 12 years ago. We did a lot of our drinking together. Uh, and she is just celebrating her 90 days sober. I don't know if it's, I mean, it's not my moment, but it was just, it made my heart just so full. Like I got to be there with her yesterday when she picked up her 90 day chip and just knowing all the things that we've been through together. And, you know, this is something else we get to share and it just made our friendship so great. That is incredible. Yeah. So what was that like seeing your friend? You, I mean, you were kind of the trailblazer with this, who's following yeah. in your footsteps, get her 90 day chip. I mean, it was really emotional, actually. I just was so proud of her, and I was so proud of the whole experience. And I just, I'm like looking at this girl, and I'm like, man, like if we knew when we met when we were 18 and all the crazy shit, excuse me, I don't know if you have to release that out, all the crazy stuff we did in college and, you know, the crazy partying we did in our 20s that we'd be like getting sober in our late 20s. And what's kind of funny about that is uh, she's not like, she's, my closest friend is getting sober, but like a lot of people I know that I've like lost track of over the years have also gotten sober, um, that I've reconnected with. And so I'm like, man, my group of friends is like, we hit it pretty hard. We hit it pretty hard. You know, it's like (laughs) number one party school rated by playboy. (laughs) Strange that people are getting sober after that. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I'll even say this because this was like shocking to me. My I reconnected with a college boyfriend right before I left for Dallas. So we were still in touch and I, I knew I was going to rehab. And so I reached out to him just to tell him and I called him and he texted me back. Hey, sorry, can't talk right now. I'm at an AA meeting. Oh, that is so cool. <laughs> that is awesome. I was like, Oh yeah. You know, if I took my time machine back and looked at our relationship when we were 20, was that inevitable? We'd be getting sober two, six months apart. So it's just like been a lot of cool stuff like that. Did you text back? It works if you work it. Keep coming back. <laughs> He's like, oh, you know the program um, Handshake too. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, but uh, so that, that's just been cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and Katie, with 496 days of sobriety, what is something you've learned about yourself? Yeah, so I am pretty resilient. I think I'm pretty tough. I made a, a commitment to health and fitness this year that I didn't really know was going to be such a big part of my life. But, you know, I, I say that's one of my biggest tools in recovery. I don't know if I'm answering your question, actually, but I have been so into looking as good on the outside as I feel on the inside and really hitting some goals. Like I had some pretty serious fitness goals this year. Obviously, I ran my half marathon. I lost like over 30 pounds since I got sober and that keeps me so incredibly motivated and happy. Yeah. It's got to feel great. Yeah. You didn't answer the question at all, but I'm, at I'm, all. no, I'm, I'm just kidding. You actually did answer the question perfectly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot okay. of sense. And that was a fitness and feeling good on the outside. Like I felt the inside was huge when I, yeah. when it, it still is for me. I'm still running a lot and I get out with my dog, Ben, and it feels great. And Katie, we have now reached the time in the podcast where I embarrass the interviewees. Are you ready for this? Haven't I already been embarrassed? <laughs> hey, there's a lot of self-incriminating evidence on me on the prior 155 episodes. So I just got to share. Um, it, can you tell us what time it is right now? I don't know. Hang on. Oh, oh, <laughs> ha, ha. So ha, we are, ha. we're at, we're at the, uh, the re, we're at rehab camp, you know, we're at the retreat in Bozeman and somebody sees that Katie has a watch on her wrist and we're on a strict schedule, right? It's meditation from 5 PM to 5:55 PM. And then, you know, this, and then, you know, and, uh, and she says, Hey Katie, what time it is? She looks at her watch. She's like, huh, I don't know. I can't read it. <laughs> it, was, it was like an analog watch, right? Or like had, had yeah, the, the hands it, in the, yeah. Well, it was like a digital analog watch. Like, I, I don't know, Paul, you put me on the spot. <laughs> and I'm embarrassed. Oh my gosh. I laughed so hard. Uh, anyways, oh, you, you learned how to read it pretty quick like after that. You like to embarrass me. Yeah. We, we, we stopped the entire schedule and, uh, we pulled out the whiteboard and, and, uh, yeah, we did that. And, uh, oh yeah. And, and another thing at, at the retreat in Dallas, we had a little game yeah. called sobriety charades and Katie got a mm. word prohibition mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, I knew, I knew I her word. Pro- yeah. I knew her word prohibition. I'm like, Oh, she's toast. There's no way she's going to get this. <laughs> and she stands up in front of the group and, uh, starts like moving her legs and doing a little dance, like moving her legs left and right and you know, arms 
in the air and I'm just like chuckling under my breath. I'm like, Oh my God, this is, this is amazing. And you know, it, it's all about having fun. It's not about embarrassing yeah. people on the spot and hope you had fun. But somebody was like, ah, oh, flapper. And the next person's like, uh, roaring 1920s. And the third person's like prohibition. It's like, damn it. How do they get that so Got fast? I, I was, I was looking I forward know. to just watching you just, just dance up you there and flounder around for a little bit. I totally did. All no, right. but it, it was great seeing you in Dallas. I, I hope you had a good time. I did. It was awesome. I was really happy it was local. That, was, that made it easy. Yeah. Yeah. And Katie, we've actually reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these okay. questions, 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. Number one, Katie, what was your worst memory from drinking or pill using? Oh, 30. Okay. I knew you were going to ask this, but I'm thinking like, what was my worst memory? I'll just say this. I woke up in this apartment once that was disgusting and I they had like bed bugs and I got like bed bug bites on me it was horrifying I couldn't believe I was there can't believe I slept there yeah that, that would suck that it really would sucked. suck next question <laughs> Katie we've all heard the aha moment have you ever had an oh shit moment indicating that you can't control your drinking or the pills you know I'm gonna say it was the, that kind of moment of clarity and rehab that was my really like oh shit moment yeah, absolutely. And, and Katie, with 496 days of sobriety, what's your plan moving forward? You know, just kind of keep doing what I'm doing, which is what are the things, this is literally what I think about, Paul, a lot when I'm talking about my sobriety and how I'm staying sober. Like, what are the things that I'm accomplishing in sobriety that I could never do when I was drinking? And staying with those things, they keep me super motivated. Like the fitness stuff, like work's going incredibly well for me. You know, everything's really just coming together and I don't know, keeping, keeping the eye on the prize kind of, but I don't want to mess with my routine. I go to the gym every day. I do hit meetings. I'm really plugged in with my friends and you know, all those are just really helping. I wrote something down that you said earlier in the interview, which was that you weren't gaining any traction in life that you were just stuck. Yeah. And, and like yeah. you just mentioned none of that stuff happens. The, the progress right. in life happens. So, um, yeah, next yeah. question. I feel like I've gotten so much momentum. It's been, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. And then what's your favorite resource in recovery? My gym. Love but I'll it. say this. I go to this really cool gym. Like, it is such a girl power, like, really tough workout. And every single morning I'm there, they do this whole, like, inhale the positivity, exhale the negativity, like, set your intention for the day. Uh, I just think it's, it's, like, such a great way to start my day every day. Yeah, that's no, great. And and then in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? You know, it's a lot easier to stay sober than it is to get sober. Agree with that tenfold. And what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or in recovery? You know, just try it, right? Like I always think about, well, I can always go back to that life. Like I know what that life was like. It wasn't great. I wasn't happy. I wasn't getting the things I wanted. But I always know it's there, you know, so it's better to try sobriety and see how your life can change if you're not happy. If you don't, if your life doesn't change and it doesn't get better, drinking's always there. But I promise you it will get better. And when you say try sobriety, give us a time frame. Try it for like a couple hours. Try it for a day. How long? Try it for, I don't know. See if you can do 90 days. Gotcha. That's a good amount of time. What would you say, Paul? What would you say? Yeah, yeah, that's, I, I, I agree with that. Hundred percent, and the same thing with people like, oh, I hate AA. I went to one meeting. It's like I recommend you go to like like forty meetings, forty different meetings. It's it's kind of hard to get a, a pulse off just one meeting. Yeah, and with sobriety, you got to give it more than I'd say more than thirty days, probably around two months to to, to ninety days to see like the physical and the mental benefits fully. Yeah, you got to give it at least three months. I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I think at that point, like my friend is experiencing now. You know, she's sleeping better she's getting to a point like physically she's feeling a lot better and i think she's so excited that she's at that point you know she's really excited to see what the next three months are going to bring you know like that so yeah it took my brain i think like four to five months to rewire when it came to sleep and sleep has been yeah. a big theme in this interview and sleep is so important i mean it's like a third of our lifetime we're sleeping if our sleep's bad we're not getting that r the deep rem cycles like our whole day is kind of fudge and alcohol. Yeah. It doesn't relax. This doesn't help us sleep. So yeah, it's a huge takeaway value bomb from this interview. And, and, and before we depart, Katie, good listeners, your own customized, you might be an alcoholic gift line. Okay. So I was out to dinner with a group of friends in Colorado last night that I'm visiting and I knew this was going to come up. So we were kind of going through like, what were the crazy things we did? Well, I lived in Cap Hill in Denver and I could never find parking. So I, 
I got a parking permit for the local liquor store. You know, do you know Argonauts? So I <laughs> I don't, but this sounds I amazing. I was a customer, so I went in and I said, like, hey, I can't find parking. Can I have a parking permit? And so I had a parking permit at the liquor store. So that is where my car was every morning. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Where I parked my car every night when I came home from work. Oh, that's one of my favorite. You might be an alcohol gift lines ever. <laughs> you have a parking permit at the liquor mart? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us on this interview. I hope you don't regret it. And listeners, I got a text from Katie this morning at like 7.15. He's just like, I-, I can't do the interview. I'm getting real anxious about it. And I texted back. I was like, you know what's coming. It's time to get outside your comfort zone, Katie. And I- I'm glad <laughs> I know, we did I said, it. I-, I said, I know you're going to tell me this. And sure <laughs> enough. Sure enough. Yeah. I'm, you know what, Paul? I'm really happy you talked me into it, too. This is awesome. Your podcast is great. You did help carry me, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Katie. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Awesome. I appreciate it, Paul. Thanks so much. You probably heard me promoting Dallas the last 26 podcast episodes, and Dallas just happened. And let me tell you, it was phenomenal. I had such a good time. A couple stats from the weekend. There was a total of 28,977 miles traveled to make the event and a total sober time of 12,898 days. If we have an event again in the future and you say, hey, I live out of state, Uh, I don't really know about going, there was 28 people that flew in from out of state. It was so fun. It was awesome to connect with other like-minded individuals. My cheeks hurt, my stomach hurt. All we did was laugh, it seemed like. We did an escape room on Friday night in Dallas, Texas at the escape game. It was a freaking blast. So I highly encourage you to get outside of your comfort zone and join us on the next meetup, which happens to be Peru. Right now, I think we got three spots left. It's going to be an epic time. And to keep this content free, please support our sponsor. Visit rxbar.com forward slash elevator. Use the promo code elevator for 25% off your first order. Okay, recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.